we are, um, we are in, the, in the series of he- Hebrews, chapter 2. And I really hope you're reading ahead, that you're allowing these words to be absorbed. Because the book of Hebrews, I cannot overestimate the value of this book. 13 chapters. But you can live in Hebrews for years and years and years and still be surprised when you read it again. There's always, as Alexander Campbell used to say, he always finds something new in Scripture. Or as Charles Hodge would say, when he reads the Scripture, he always finds something that wasn't in there yesterday. Hebrews is like that. On the front of our building is the name Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. And that's how we're known to many of our neighbors. That name was chosen long ago to represent the fact that we are open to all believers. The name Church of Christ was not a brand name at that time, nor was it intended to become a brand name. It meant all believers, and it was in common usage. Even back in Romans 16, the Churches of Christ salute you. That didn't mean places with Church of Christ on the outside. It, it meant all believers. And we are open and wel- we welcome all believers in Christ. But there, we, we must admit that after the, the Civil War, War of Aggression, whatever you want to call it here, uh, that our attitudes hardened. And the name became a brand name, and a ra- rather narrow one at that. Some of those more narrow churches have invited us to change our name, saying, you're not really a church of Christ. You know something? We're not going to change our name. We're going to redeem the name. We're going to show people that the name Church of Christ means what it means, and that is, are you a believer? Welcome. We will not draw walls, we will not build walls, rather, or draw lines, because, and this is the biggie, it's all about Christ. Everything. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Jesus stories. And as we walk through Hebrews this summer, we're going to see that, uh, that message pounded again and again. Our salvation is hung upon the fact that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus did come to us, did teach, did die, was resurrected, now ascended. Paul said, in fact, that's all he needs to know. And he said, that's all I will preach to you is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our salvation is hung upon Jesus. And to illustrate that, I want to use an old, old story, which actually will come in quite, this, the situation today, will actually come in quite handy in 1 Samuel 17. Not going to go there, but you might want to make a note of it. 1 Samuel 17 is that very well-known passage to VBS goers everywhere. The Philistines have gathered for war. They have decided as a people, they need to wipe out the Israelites. So the Israelites gathered their men and camped them on one hill, opposite of the Philistines who camped on another hill. Wars were not fought by standing armies in this day. You didn't have a standing army. There would be a small cadre of professional bodyguards and professional spies. But when you had to fight a war, you just went and grabbed everybody and told them, you're in the army. And so you had farmers and you had ranchers and you had tax collectors, you had to all stand in there with anything they could grab. Rocks, sticks, if they had a sword, great. But they would come, and you had to, you had to finish this pretty quick. Because if you're on a campaign 
with your people and you stay on that campaign too long, the crops will not be tended. The animals will be loose. Your people back home will lose even if you're winning on the field. So battles were done in a very different way back in these days. Generally speaking, it wasn't in one of those Braveheart moments where this group just runs at that group and they both just collide in the middle. That's terribly inefficient. That doesn't work that well. They instead would say, we, got, we need our people, you need your people. But we, we're going to settle this by champions. We're going to send champions in between the army. And whoever wins, that team wins. And by the way, that almost always was true. There were some people that once one side won, the other guys got in the fight and started fighting. They were, they were scorned in the ancient world because that's not the way you do things. We have rules. If the champions win, the champions win. In the Battle of Barkburn in Scotland, one of the battles for Scottish independence back in, uh, around the year 1300, even there, the English army drags up on one side, the Scots on the other side, and the English sent out a champion just to run and go get Robert the Bruce, uh, who was actually French. He wasn't, he was Norman. He wasn't actually Scottish. It was Robert de Bruce, but we don't bring that up. Um, well, I guess I just did. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, um, and they, they met in the middle, and Robert de Bruce killed the other guy, and the English said, well, that's not good enough, and they came across, and they were roundly scorned, in that, and they lost the battle anyway, but they, they were roundly scorned for disobeying the rules of war. So Goliath enters. I'm not really calling you guys Philistines, because if I was doing this more, if Philistines outnumbered the Israelites, you'd have to be it. Goliath walks on into the valley of Elah. That, the name of the Valley of Elah, I want you to keep that in your mind today. Now, if you're a Hebrew speaker, you would pronounce that in a different way. But this is the way it, it has come into our English, so I'm just going to keep it that way. The Valley of Elah, in walks the giant, Goliath. He mocked them. He laughed at them. He walked back and forth insulting them. By the way, this was normal. This was the way you fought battles. And this walked all the way people all the way up to the Napoleonic age this is the way you did things you mocked the enemy your champion would throw out all kinds of boast and the like and call saying all right who will come fight me well the king of Israel was terrified of this guy that's not good Saul was terrified so were his people this is a giant man the the oldest manuscripts we have come from the Dead Sea Scrolls actually of this passage and they have him down as six, Goliath, as six foot nine, which would have been a giant in those days. Later writings say he was nine feet nine. I don't much care, frankly. The point isn't how tall he was. Can I just step aside for a minute on this? Please remember when you do Bible stories, the point of the story is the point of the story. So if you're studying, for example, Noah and the flood, and you're trying to figure out how much square footage you need for a cheetah, you've missed the point. The point's not the boat. The point's not the animals. The point is about obedience to God. So, well, I'm not going to argue whether he's 6'9 or 9'9. That's bigger than me. That's bigger than most folk. 
And he was strong and muscular enough that they said that the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Now, I don't know how they know that. Because I'm pretty sure he didn't tell them. Maybe they got it later and weighed it. And I don't really, this is one of those things. When I read stories, I'm often asked not to talk about them because I, I think of these sort of things. But he's striding back and forth and just saying, all right, who's going to come after me? Well, there's only one, so they can only send one guy out. That's the rules. They could find nobody. They needed a champion. And if you read 1 Samuel 17 and think, and God gave them David as a champion, you're reading it wrong. David would have disagreed. Look what he says in 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. By the way, that's kind of standard talk in battles back then too. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give all of you into our hands. Notice that the deal was not accepted. This is very important. The deal was... Goliath's deal, you send your best against me. If he kills me, we all surrender and go away. If I kill you, you all surrender and you'll be our slaves. And David's going, no, no. We're going to kill you first. And then we're going to kill the guys behind you. But it's not going to be us. It's going to be our God. Now this did not frighten Goliath. Because they believed in lots of gods. And they believed that their God could beat up your God especially if you met in an area that was known as belonging to your God. They, they really did this. Mountains, tops belonged to one God. The guy in the valley was a different God. And the river that ran through it was a different God. It was a very complex uh, cosmology, frankly. God is the champion. That's what David was saying. It's not me. In fact, have you ever noticed what David did to prepare for this battle? He went down and he got five stones... He overarmed. With God, all he needed was the one. We tend to do this thinking, all right, I trust God, but I'm getting extra bullets. I trust God, but we need to have our account at a certain number. No, 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 no. Take one stone. If God is with you, you're going to need one stone. That's it. So go. By the, um, slingshots back then, by the way, were not that U-shaped thing with the handle and the rubber band where you, you fire. They were a string attached to a leather pouch, a, a leather pad would be better said there, and another string. You'd put a rock in that pouch, pick up the ends of the string, and you would swing and then let go of the right one at the right time. It is a real skill. Um, I'm glad our young boys are away. Do not practice this skill, uh, not without adult supervision. And if any adult will let you do it, they're probably not really adult, are they? There is, um, C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. 
and I never really got into it, and I feel really ashamed for this. I love his nonfiction theological stuff. Oh my goodness, I eat it up. But when I read the, the, the Narnia Chronicles, I just, it's so English. You know, it's, oh, what shall we ever do? And I'm going, you know, right, I don't much care at this point. But the second movie, and I know it's blasphemous, I'm sorry. Uh, they, the second movie they made, there at the penultimate, or not penultimate, the ultimate, rather, scene, the biggest battle scene, Satan's army is coming, and there are all kinds of monsters and, and warped men, and they are coming heavily armed, and as they approach the bridge that they have to take, out walks the smallest girl. If you, one of my, it's a favorite scene of mine in all of the movies and all the books. She just steps out with a sweet little smile on her face, and pulls out this tiny little knife. And the entire army on the other side is going, what? And they charge, and God shows up. God shows up because faith showed up. In Hebrews chapter 2, they are painting the Valley of Elah for us. And every time, four times, you will see there is a giant in the valley who is mocking us, but the giant is not called Goliath. The giant is called death. We fear dying. We fear death. Those are two different things. I'm not repeating myself. I'm not afraid of death. Dying, though, holds some fear. Does it not? We don't know how we're going to go. You know, I'd, I'd love to die of injury sustained from falling off my wallet. But that's not going to happen. I, I would like like to die of happiness one day. He just laughed and laughed and his heart couldn't take it. Uh, probably not going to happen that way. So we're afraid of dying. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of weakness of age, the passing of our glory, the slide from our peak. Many of us remember that time where we looked in the mirror and realized, uh-oh, I peaked. This is a slide. Remember the first time I put on my, uh, my coat and my dad's hands came out. And I went, no, I'm not ready for this. But it doesn't matter if you're ready or not. Time and death sit there in the valley mocking us. You're running out of time. Your, your retirement's coming up. Do you have enough money? Do you, have, you, have, you take, have you eaten the right medications to where you'll live long enough to run out of your money? I'm getting mixed messages from the commercials. Uh, or uh, do you have the side effects that will kill you uh, so we can get another customer? Whatever it is, we're terrified by this. We don't know how to handle it. So the first verses of chapter 2 really, however, start in chapter 1, verse 14. That warning to a biblically literate community of Jews, remember our God and remember how he treats those who refuse to follow him or do what he commands. Chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us, by those who heard him. 
The story is rolling forward. So four times in the rest of this chapter, we will take a look at how and why Jesus is our champion when in the valley of Elah. Each of those takes ends in a cross. He is our champion, and he proves it by the cross. Quick editorial note. This book is Hebrews. It was written to believing Jews. I will be using the term Jews frequently every Sunday. It is never meant to paint Jews as other than us. We are very, very careful to make sure that we honor our older brothers and sisters in the faith. And the Jews are our older brothers and sisters. So when we say Jews, we're not, please understand, we, we're referring to a group that existed, that the letter is aimed toward, but we're not, a, we're not speaking less of them at all. In fact, um, Romans and Hebrews make sure that we don't ever do that. Here's the first take, Hebrews chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. Whoa. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. Look at verse 8. And put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. And people, we need to get this. It is a, it is a psalm, or rather the writer of Psalm 8, that looked at the stars one night and asked what his place was in this vast universe when he said, what is man that you are mindful of him? We would sometimes look out at the Colorado sky and you get away from the lights and it is, there are a lot of stars up there, people that you just don't see. It's amazing. And if you have people with you, there will always be one that will say, looking up at that grass, vast expanse, so vast, so far away, Does, doesn't it make you feel small? And my response was always, no, it's a burning rock. It's humans that are amazing because God has put the universe under our feet. We are the ones God put in charge of the universe. Believe me, I know how crazy that sounds. Almost as crazy as sending out a kid with a slingshot against a Goliath. But that's the point he's making. We are to care for it. Do you remember the first rules? Care for it. Dress the garden. Keep it well. All of us, male and female, were destined to become monarchs of the university. Uh, I'm sorry, monarchs of the universe. For there was nothing left out. He says there's nothing left out of what God has put us over. Some of us know this. Some parts of us all know this. And so we strive to beat the world. We, try, we, we see a mountain, we want to climb it. We want to get a world record, so we climb, we run, we work, we jump. We create so that we will mean something, that we will leave something behind that changes 
the world. We want to leave a legacy. But we have failed to exert our authority the way we were expected to. Our authority is a derived authority. I'll have to explain that because you don't use that term very often, I'm sure. Someone else gave us our authority and our task. We were made a little lower than the angels so that we could learn our place and our duty. But we have allowed ourselves to forget our mission. Love one another. We've allowed ourselves to forget that. Love God. Love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Do good to those who do evil to you. Go into all the world. The task that God has given us, we have forgotten and we have failed. And so while all things are under our feet, de jure, by law, they are not de facto, in fact. And the writer of Hebrews brings that up to shame us as we should be shamed. But then Jesus enters and says, see, this is how it's done. He enters the valley of Elah. He takes on death. He takes on everything that distracts us. The reason we fail is because we're distracted. We're distracted by time. We're distracted by stuff on the earth. We're, we're, death scares us. So we're hurrying, trying to get things done. But we forget what we're supposed to do. So Jesus comes, according to the writer of Hebrews, he dies, and he comes back to show us you don't need to be afraid of what's in the valley of Elah. Whatever your Goliath is today, you don't need to be afraid of it because you don't have to defeat it. God will. You just have to walk in the valley trusting God. Jesus is the remover of all fears, the warrior, our champion, who fought our battle for us and who won. But he's quite the unexpected champion. David was quite the unexpected champion. I've had people, you know, little pictures of him as a, as a tiny guy, maybe an 8 or 12 or 13 year old. We have no idea exactly what he looked like and his musculature. All we do know is that the armor didn't fit him. It was too big and too heavy. And he said, I can't fight with this. And he took it off. What we do know is he was not impressive. Whenever Samuel comes to anoint the son of Jesse as king, that was the one they didn't even bring into the group because they thought, that one, nobody's going to be impressed with him. God doesn't need you to be young. He doesn't need you to be really smart. And if you're young and really smart, yay. We, we, we rejoice in that. He doesn't need you to walk, wake up in the morning without pain. I'm talking to most of my peers here. When I wake up in the morning and get out of bed, the first thing I say is not, thank you, Jesus. The first thing I say is, ow. <laughs> Nobody told me that you can fail to nail the dismount at a certain age <laughs> just trying to get out. It, um, you know, and, and Snap, Crackle, Pop used to be a cereal. Now it's the tune I play as I walk uh, to get ready in the morning. God doesn't need you to be tough. He doesn't need you to be battle ready. He just says, take me with you into the valley of Elah and I will take away your fear, our fear, but our 
champion doesn't look like you might think. In Revelation chapter 5, after a big battle scene, I heard a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because this book, by the way, is our future as a people, our children's future. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You're supposed to get some mental whiplash there. And if you don't get it, it's because the Bible has become so routine to you. Don't do that. Just don't do it. Don't let the Bible become routine. Don't let your, your marriage become routine. Don't, don't let it just be a routine that you come to church. Absorb what it all really means. Our champion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, looks like a, a lamb that lost the battle. Standing there like a slaughtered lamb covered with blood, cuts and the like that's our champion yes because with God that's all you need that's all you need someone to show up that's all you need it is it's stark it is shocking and it is wonderful we disagree therefore with Shakespeare's Hamlet who says life's but a walking shadow a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what the world says about your life. We counter with Colossians 1, 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is in Christ in you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hold that verse up there for a minute. The word mystery, and I don't want to make too much of this, it was in use, uh, very well known back in those days, but it didn't mean exactly what it means to us. I like to read mysteries where something bad happens, now who done it? You know, and you read through. I like to read those. That's not this kind of mystery. This word was most often applied to a battle plan. The generals knew it. You didn't. The general knew what to do and did not share it with the larger group because of spies. He knew the plan. We have been given the mystery, the battle plan. What is it? We're going to straight out into the valley of Elah. We're going to fight whatever Goliath is there. How are you going to do it? Love. That doesn't seem to make sense. But neither does a slaughtered lamb. Neither does sending a shepherd boy against a giant. Getting the point now? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's you. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that would be Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. 
Don't think that scars, blood, and failure is really failure to God. No. It might be your medals. Your medals because of what you have done for Jesus. As Paul put it, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children God has given me. Jesus did this so he could brag on us as he introduces us to the Father. He came to bring us unity. Remember the sermon where I illustrated our genius for division by saying at youth rallies, I would ask people that like this kind of music to stand up or people who are from this place to stand up. And after a while, the cat calls began to go back and forth against the groups because we have a genius for division. Well, Jesus has a genius for unity, bringing us here by adoption. My parents adopted several children um, and I grew up with an ever-changing family. And I can remember one time I was in an argument with a young boy they had adopted, you know, and uh, I decided to pull some rank. You know, I'm saying, right, I'm the firstborn son here. And then he looked at me and he goes, they had to have you. They chose me. (laughs) So I killed him and buried him in the backyard. No, 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 no. Thought about it. But no, there are no nine-year-old boys that are truly Christian at heart. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Everything comes back to the cross. Everything. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's us. Third time, we come to the valley. The devil uses death against us. Jesus removes the shackle. Death is not a thing. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of life. And by life, we, we include all those things. Strength, vitality, uh, fearlessness. Death really means Separation. And that's why the Bible can say on the day that Adam ate the fruit, he died. And yet he lived on for many years. He died because he was separate from God. He was separated from who he should have been. Because he did not stay with Jesus. He stepped away. God has come to remove the driving force of our sins, which is death. We're afraid we're not going to get all of our jollies. We're not going to have everything we wanted. We're not going to be everything we wanted to be. Because death is coming too quick. So we divorce our wives and get uh, a younger model. And and we we dump the car and we get a faster model that we can't put any kids in. Uh, we, we, We do everything. Why are we doing all this? Because we're terrified we won't get our joy. Jesus entered the valley of Elah. He fought death. He survived it. Came back to the group and said, see... I got scars, but there is no death. Life is on the other side of the valley. And that is something we need to keep in our heads. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, 
For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. Because the Jews adopted us. Jesus, as a Jew, adopted us. For this reason, he had to be made like them. Here we go, right back to the valley. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because, here's the cross, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Every time we're brought to the valley, we find death. And every time we find Jesus there going through it for us so that we are no longer afraid. Jesus can restore us in times of trouble because he is faithful. We forgot our jobs. He did not forget his. And he is calling us back to faithfulness. He gets it. He understands much more about that later in the book of Hebrews. He doesn't want you to live in rebelliousness. Please understand that there are sins he will not forgive. And whenever I say that, it always terrifies people. So listen carefully. He will not forgive you if you rebel against him and refuse to follow him and say, I know what God says, but I don't care. And you die like this? You die in the valley on your own. We have to bow our knee to Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says every knee will bow to him. I would suggest bow now and beat the rush. It's going to happen. Let's do it now. But all of our brokenness, he forgives. All of our besetting sins, he forgives. Because that's what he does. Read the Gospels. That's what he does. There's a paralyzed man being lowered from the roof. And I know I'm going a bit, but there are no classes. I'll be done here uh, next hour, so hang in. He's preaching, and people have gone up and are lowering a guy through the roof. I love that story, because they're doing church. And these people have dismantled a bit of it. Jesus is preaching, and, and you just know there are people there that day that were going, oh, I don't approve of this. This is not the way we used to do it. I knew once we got rid of the songbooks, started projecting stuff. Next thing you know, people coming out the ceiling. It's a slippery slope. People, you ever be told you're on a slippery slope, get a grip. You'll be fine. What did Jesus do? His first, my first thing would have been, that's really cool. Oh, you can't walk? I'll heal you. What is Jesus' first instinct? Forgiving sins. Every time you find, that's the first thing he thinks about the thief on the cross. You'll be with me in paradise. Why? What did he ever do? Oh, that's not the point. It's what Jesus did in the valley of Elah. He said, I can take you. I can carry you. Those who were crucifying, forgive them. It's what he does. So there's no reason for us to be afraid. We can, we can relax. We can be confident. Would, um, Jeff, would, there you are, right up front. Like you had anywhere else to go. Um, we can be confident in our journey because we believe Jesus is in the Valley of Elah and Jesus will save. I'll even go further. We believe he already has saved. Eternal life is not a gift to be received later. You have it now. Death is nothing but a crossing of a river, another step on the journey. Would you stand 
and read with me a statement of our faith and confidence. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do you believe that, church? Then amen.